Reading is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, on page 1233 of the Church Bibles. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be those who are blessed As we look at the book of Revelation, we would take it to heart, uh, and as we do so, uh, we would uh, be encouraged, comforted, and blessed, for we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, Read an article a few years ago um, describing the massacre of a group of Christians in a particularly brutal way by some Islamist fighters and that the kind of the above the caption above this article was uh, three words where was God where was God Uh, and you know around the world uh, through time people have asked that same question I suspect most of us here uh, if, if not verbally we've deep down asked that same question facing uh, something. Where, where's God in this? Uh, because there inevitably comes uh, times of doubt, particularly uh, for Christians when they face uh, opposition. So uh, each year the Open Doors is, a, is a, a charity. It publishes a world watch list which tracks uh, the treatment of Christians around the world. And in, in 2022, there were 360 Christians who faced high levels of persecution and discrimination. 360? No. 360 million Christians who faced high levels of persecution and discrimination for being a Christian. Now, if you want to see how they've worked that out, go and look at their websites. It's, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, yeah, that, 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 that's their goal. But, but 360 million Christians, is, that is half the population of the continent of Europe. It is one in seven believers worldwide. 
facing high levels, high levels of persecution and discrimination. And of course, uh, here in Britain, uh, undoubtedly, uh, things are better for Christians. But we're all aware, aren't we, of the way in which uh, secularism is increasingly pushing mainstream Christian beliefs uh, into the periphery, into what they're describing as extreme views, harmful views even. And being a Christian in that environment is, is hard, uh, and uh, particularly if you're working in the public sector. Remaining faithful to Jesus can be challenging, and we all know the pressure to ask that question, where is God? Is it worth carrying on? Well, uh, today as we start a series, this term in the book of Revelation, it was written for Christians uh, in that situation who were asking that very question, where is God? What is God doing? Now, when we come to the Revelation, uh, if you're remotely familiar with it, you'll know that this is something totally different, it seems, from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, in fact, I heard a, a story of, um, uh, of a university Christian union that were giving out New Testaments to students. Uh, a Christian student gave a copy of the New Testament to one guy. A couple of weeks later, he saw him and said, oh, how did you get on? Did you read the New Testament? He said, yes. So it was really slow going. Like the first, the first part, he just said the same thing again and again and again. But the science fiction bit at the end, that was great. And, um, and of course... You know, what are we to make of this? Uh, The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, was less kind. He described Revelation as page after page of paranoid fantasy and malice, like the letters clergymen so frequently get from the wretched and the disturbed. And of course, uh, and I'll be honest, you know, I've had some of those letters and emails. I've spoken to people in that category uh, and you know, I've heard that sort of thing. And you don't have to go too far into films and literature to see people drawing from the book of Revelation in, frankly, disturbing ways. And alongside that, we then get the kind of obsessed crackpot types who really focus in on something and, 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 and everything becomes about that. Uh, and what are we to do with that? And we've had experience of that. In fact, we got an email at the church office this week from someone doing precisely that. What are we to make of it? Is revelation, is it? Is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Is it dangerous? Is it disturbing? And in the light of all that, many Christians just conclude, well, it's probably best avoided as far as possible. So why read it? Well, at verse 4, It's striking, isn't it? Because verse 4 tells us, like much of the New Testament, that this was written by an apostle as a letter to churches, to Christians in the first century. Uh, Christians, uh, we're told, uh, in the Roman province of Asia, who were facing persecution and increasing persecution. And therefore, uh, there was a a letter that's written to them to help them, and it's a letter written to Christians uh, in all times to prepare them for the difficulties and challenges that living for Jesus brings. Uh, we prayed for Mims earlier, these words, uh, and of course as we prayed them for her, we, we, it's good, this is a great prayer for us to be praying for one another. 
We prayed fight valiantly as a disciple of Christ against sin, the world, and the devil, and remained faithful to Christ to the end of your life. And that prayer, in a sense, is in many ways the aim of the book of Revelation. To help us live as a disciple of Jesus uh, in a world that is often hostile uh, and seemingly dark. Well, in, in these first nine verses, I think well, there's two big reasons why we should be reading Revelation. Uh, they're on the, the, the notice sheet you've been given as you came in if you're taking notes. But the first reason is this. Revelation is to comfort us. Revelation is to comfort us when living for Jesus is difficult. Uh, let me read verses one to, uh, one to two. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So verse one, we're told right up front that this book uh, of Revelation is a revelation. And that means an uncovering, a revealing uh, of something which obviously therefore we couldn't see otherwise. What is that? Well, it is God and what he's doing in the world, uh, which includes, as we'll see as we go through the letter, the unseen spiritual battle that is going on behind the events of our lives and in our world. Now, uh, why is this important? Well, just think for a moment of a, uh, a long thing aluminium tube stuffed full of people thrust at high speed and high altitude the process which we call flying okay uh, it is it is an extraordinary idea when you think about it isn't it now um, I was once on a flight uh, and up, uh, uh, I, I, I could see where I was up, up the little front there was the air stewards who were increasingly getting a bit of a flap and in a bit of a panic because there was a problem with a machine at the front, and I'm not quite sure what it was or what it did, um, that was to do with the hot meals that they were about to serve, okay? Uh, and I could see them getting increasingly frustrated and in a panic. And, um, and one, one of them I heard say to the other, it's not working, and was pointing to this blinking red light on the machine and said, I can't fix it. And then another one said, well, we, we, we're not going to be able to serve it. And then, and then one of the air stewards caught my eye. See, I was kind of watching. They could see that they were being watched and, and promptly drew a curtain across the front to hide whatever was going on. Now, look, uh, uh, at this point, um, I can't remember how that story ended. I can't remember if they fixed it or not, um, or whether they actually, I, I, I have no recollection of that on the flight. I mean, because let's be honest, um, you know, a, a crisis with an airline dinner is gonna lead to some disgruntled and irritable passengers, and that's about it, isn't it? Imagine for a moment that the door for the, to the cockpit swings open, okay? And there we see into the cockpit, and what do we see? The pilots, and they're in a panic. They're, they're kind of all frustrated. They're, they're shouting at each other, it's not working, one of them screams, pointing to a flashing red light. Uh, I can't fix it. We're not going to be able to make it, says the other. Now look, you see, the chaos in the cockpit of an airplane is a completely different order of things to chaos in, in, in the rest of the airplane, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that I assume we'd all be in agreement with. 
Uh, and the book of Revelation is a drawing back of the curtain, an opening of the door so we can see what is going on right in the heart of what God is doing in the world, in the cockpit. Uh, God isn't out of control. He hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. He's not helpless to what's going on in the world. Even when we might ask, where is God? And when we do, God, Revelation gives us the answer. Uh, it tells us there's order in the cockpit, Jesus is in control, and he will bring us safely to his destination. That's what Revelation is doing. So verse one, uh, the, rev- the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place, God's in control. And one of the things that was soon to take place when John was uh, writing this was a substantial rise in the persecution in the Roman Empire. Uh, the emperor, Domitian at the time, he, he required people to pledge an oath of allegiance to him above all else. And in some places, uh, people were required to uh, worship a statue of the emperor and call him Lord and God, which, of course, uh, a genuine Christian couldn't do. No, because the Christian's ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He, he's the one whom they can rightly call Lord and God. And so God knew that these Christians in Asia, as well as Christians uh, since, need to be prepared for the difficulties and challenges that we will face if we're going to live for Jesus. And so Revelation, it reveals uh, two big things. It reveals, firstly, this spiritual battle that's going on behind all of that. It, It reminds us there's no such thing as spiritual neutrality. Jesus taught his disciples that you're either for Jesus or you're against him. And that if we're for him, we shouldn't be surprised that people are against us for being for him. And behind that is an unseen spiritual battle. But Revelation also reveals to us the end, the end of that spiritual battle, the end with a capital E, the return of the Lord Jesus, who will wrap up history, who will overthrow all the opposition that he's currently uh, facing and allowing and bring his people to his eternal glory and safety. So the book of Revelation is to comfort us as it reassures us that Jesus is in control. It's going to end. It's going to be all right that if we're for Jesus, we're on the winning side, and he will keep us and bring us home. Isn't that what we need to hear? So look what the aim of John's book is, verse 3. Blessed, not bemused, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed, not bewildered, blessed are those who hear it and take take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John's aim is blessing for God's people as they read this book. As we endure hardship, as we trust Jesus, this book helps us keep going, even and especially when we suffer. There is peace in the cockpit. Jesus is on the throne, and he will bring us to our destination. This is for our comfort. 
But secondly, revelation uh, is the gospel applied to the situation of persecution. That's what the book of Revelation is. In a sense, there's nothing new in it. It's just helping us uh, apply the gospel into uh, our lives as we seek to live for Jesus. Now, one of the challenges of doing that is that the book of Revelation uses a particular style of writing. It's, it's a style of writing that's called apocalyptic. And it's not unique to Revelation. It's, it's, it's used elsewhere in the Bible, and it's not unique to the Bible. Uh, in fact, um, one of the things in the last 50 years that's really helped us understand how to uh, interpret the book of Revelation has been the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not because they contain new and exciting information, but because it contains other examples of apocalyptic writing. And that helps us understand the style of writing better. Now, uh, apocalyptic writing, it uses what's called word pictures. And word pictures are vivid words that conjure up pictures to describe a, a reality, a reality that's often beyond our understanding. Uh, and much of the imagery is not new to Revelation. Indeed, most of it is drawn from the Old Testament. Now, look, there's lots that we can say about all of this, um, and uh, I could literally talk for nearly two hours about it. Um, I have done before. I'm not going to do that today because what we're going to do is over the coming weeks, we're going to help us learn how to read apocalyptic writing as we look at the book of Revelation. So we're going to do that over time. We're going to look at symbolism, significance of words, and all the different things around all of that that we need to be able to understand to help us rightly uh, interpret it. But in the midst of all of that, we mustn't lose sight that the book of Revelation is just the gospel applied to Christians in the particular situation of facing persecution and hostility to their faith. And again, that's important for us to be reminded of. Uh, look, we have different situations some of you will know the struggle and the pain of this more acutely than others because of your particular circumstances. But whatever our situation, Revelation does that for us. Granted, it is the gospel dressed up in different clothes, in different words, okay? It's not straightforwards, uh, but we mustn't lose sight. It's the gospel. So look at verses four and five. John, that's the Apostle John who wrote the author, uh, the author of the Gospel uh, and then the three letters in uh, the New Testament. Uh, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, uh, that is God the Father, and from the seven spirits before the throne, we'll come back to that next week, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And in that kind of little greeting, John does what he's going to do, if you like, uh, he does in mini what he's going to do for the rest of the whole book. And that is to remind people of the death, the resurrection, and the present reign of Jesus Christ, and show us why that's important for the church uh, living in this, in this age. So again, verse 5, uh, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. 
Now, to understand that phrase, turn over the page with me to chapter 2, verse 13. Chapters 2 and 3 give specific messages to the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia that are listed uh, in verse 2. Sorry, um, uh, no, we come to it again next week. But um, uh, that are listed, these seven churches in Asia uh, uh, that is now in modern-day Turkey, Uh, And in one of those messages in chapter 2, verse 13, the risen Lord Jesus says to one of them, verse 13, says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. See, there's the same phrase. Did did you notice that verse? uh, Same as chapter 1, verse 5, the faithful, uh, faithful witness. Now, this was written in Greek, and the Greek for witness is the word martus, or martyr, uh, as we'd say. And uh, the word martyr means literally a witness. So imagine if I said to you today, listen, look, I want all of you here today at Trinity, I want all of you to go out and be a martyr this week. You'd probably all be kind of sitting there with a slight uncomfortable silence, And then you'd probably quietly say, well, look, if there's anything else you'd have me do this week, Dave, that would be great. Because we associate a martyr with someone who gives their life to the faith. But but it didn't. A martyr was someone who testifies to something. So you might say, look, I've I've got to go to court today to be a martyr. That that didn't mean you were going to die. It meant that you were going to give evidence as a witness to, you know, a chariot crash outside your house or whatever. But when Christians like Antipas in Revelation 2 verse 13 started being taken to court or uh, and those who wouldn't renounce their faith, they faced death. And that is why it became associated with dying. Uh, turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 9. Uh, I, John. Uh, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John's been, it seems, banished by the Roman authorities to try to stop his Christian influence. Uh, John, a martyr too, uh, in his witness, in his testimony to Jesus. And what does uh, John say? How does he describe himself? He, he could say because of his witness for Jesus, he was their brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And those words are striking, aren't they? Uh, firstly, suffering. A, companion, a brother and companion in suffering. It's the idea there in that word of being under great pressure. Okay, now, now look... Um, you know, we might feel that pressure at work or at school or wherever, but, but it was a word used for crushing out the juice of grapes when you press them. That's what John describes being a Christian, or what his experience of being a Christian at that time, but the suffering. Uh, and secondly, patient endurance, to kind of keep going, whatever the cost, whatever your circumstances, to not give up because of the kingdom. Now, look, uh, 15, 20 years after Revelation was written by John, 
Pliny the Younger was a Roman, uh, had a famous uncle called Pliny the Elder, but he was appointed as a Roman governor to Bithynia, and Bithynia is in modern-day northern Turkey, okay, northern Turkey, Bithynia, and he was appointed governor there, and when he arrived, he first encountered Christians, uh, and he didn't really know what to make of them, and, and because he was bewildered by them, Pliny wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan uh, for advice, and that letter's been preserved. He wrote this, uh, those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following practice. I interrogated these to, to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed that they were, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. And what Pliny called stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy, well, John calls patient endurance. Keep going, not renouncing your faith, even facing death for that. Now, um, chapter 1, verse 5, John calls Jesus not a faithful witness like Antipas, the faithful witness. The faithful witness. In other words, Jesus is the prototype witness, uh, the one who has died for his own as our rightful Lord, and the one uh, who is, uh, if you like, not asking those who follow him to be where he hasn't himself been. And so John's reminding us that if we have to suffer for Jesus and whatever we suffer for Jesus, Jesus knows He's the prototype witness. He's the faithful witness. But more than that, verse 5, he's the firstborn from the dead. That is that he was not just killed for, uh, for standing for who, uh, who he was and what he believed for his faithfulness to God. Uh, no, he was raised to, to eternal life. The, the, the first to be raised to this resurrection life, but not the last. Why? Because for all who trust in him will share in that resurrection life. So what if, uh, like in the extreme case, like for Antipas, you lose your life for Jesus? Well, the gospel says your very next experience will be to be with Jesus. And the question is, do we believe that? If you're a Christian here today, do you believe that? Christians around the world really have to believe that. A few years ago, I, was, uh, I met a, uh, a Rwandan uh, church planter who was leading church plants uh, into the Democratic Republic of Congo. He showed me pictures of his church planting team. Uh, there were six of them. Half of them had been killed by militia. Okay. They, they really need to believe this, don't they? Now, here's the thing. Okay, if you think they need to believe this, he then showed me his new church planting team. Now think of that. Now these are those uh, who had volunteered willingly to take the place of those who had been killed in the process of church planting. They need to believe this, don't they? Of course they do. 
Brothers and sisters around the world, this is their daily experience. One in seven. We need to believe it too. So he is the, uh, the, the faithful witness, the, the firstborn of the dead. But more than that still, verse 5, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of all rulers. Domitian, Trajan. And we can go through uh, all history. He is the ruler of kings, the ruler of rulers. They have no power except that which Jesus gives them. We must never think that Jesus cedes his power to those on earth uh, whom seem to have power. No, here is your king, says John. The one who rules over all, the, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And in the midst of all that goes on in our world, for our spiritual stability, we need to remember this. Jesus is king. He's the ruler over all. And so John then wants us to kind of look two ways to help us do this rightly. Firstly, he says we're going to look backwards to Jesus' death, and then he wants us to look forwards to his return. So firstly, to look back to his death, verse 5. To him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You see, John knew that in the midst of persecution, of suffering, and of trial, you can't read God's love for you off your circumstances. No. No, he says, look back to the cross because at the cross... That is where you know that Jesus loves you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. You see, as I look at Jesus, the one who died to free me from my sin, to bring him to himself, to his eternal life in him, that is how I know I am loved. Not through my relationships working out. Not through what people say about me. Not by how I'm treated at work or at school. Not through job success or redundancy. Not through living in peace or through persecution. Knowing all these things and in every situation, the anchor for the view that God loves me and I'm secure in that and stable in that is never my circumstances, but it is in the cross of Jesus who died for me. So John says, look back to the cross. Don't lose sight of that. But John also wants us to look the other way around and look forwards and say, look to Jesus' return, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. Remember Jesus, he didn't just predict his death. He didn't just predict his resurrection. He also predicted his return. And his death and his resurrection have been accomplished. He died and he was raised. So don't doubt that he will return. Because he will. The resurrection uh, of Jesus has been completed. He has ascended into heaven and he is seated and rules at the right hand of the Father. That has set the clock ticking. Not to the apocalypse, but to his return. His return is the event by which we are to look forwards to. 
And the question John is implicitly asking us therefore in verse seven is this, whose side do you want to be on when he returns? You see, there are times when we're not in our right minds, when we wish that we were on the world's side now, just to fit in, just to make it easier, just to avoid the difficulties of living for Jesus. We've all faced that temptation. We know that pressure, don't we? Just be, just be easier, I keep my head down, keep quiet, pretend I'm just like everybody else. But the question we've got to keep in front of us is this, whose side do we want to be with when Jesus returns? Do you want to be on the side of verses five and six, those whom he loves, who's welcomed into his kingdom, those who have been forgiven and receive his resurrection life, the one for whom he has loved? Of course, that's what we're celebrating today with Mims' baptism, isn't it? The new life. She's been washed clean, set free. Uh, She's been uh, died to our old self and raised to new life in Christ Jesus, forgiven. Praise God. That's what we're celebrating. Or do you want to be on the side of verse 7? Those who realize in anguish that they're on the wrong side of him irreversibly so uh, one commentators put it either we side with Jesus and face the wrath of the world now or we side with the world and we face the wrath of Jesus then and that is the most important choice we face in life isn't it uh, by that lake Mims told us uh, that she knew what she must do maybe there are here some today who, uh, like her, thinking, I, I've heard about this, maybe I've heard about this for years, but I've never really sided with Jesus. Can I ask you to do that today? Now? This day? And for those who are facing that struggle to keep going, remember, remember Jesus who died, Jesus who's the Lord, Jesus who will return again, Jesus who has got you. Revelation is repairing us for the persecution and difficulties. He, he, he's promised it will come to us, all of us, in different ways, but it will come. But there's not chaos in the cockpit. Jesus is in control. He's got us, and he will bring us safely home. So John applies the gospel to us in our situation of persecution. Well, let me pray for us as we end. Father, we, uh, we need this encouragement, this blessing of revelation. Thank you that it applies the gospel to our lives that we might not be left in the dark, but equipped to live for Jesus, to fight valiantly as the disciple of Christ against sin, the world, and the devil, and remain faithful to Jesus Christ as long as we shall live or until he returns. For we ask this in your name. Amen.